Good morning, everyone. Morning. For those of you who haven't had a chance to meet, which is probably about all of you, uh, my name is Thomas Kuhn. I am the campus minister uh, at UNL with RUF. Uh, yeah, yeah, right on. Yeah, so we've only lived here about a week, so if you haven't met us yet, don't feel too bad. I'm sure we'll have plenty of time ahead of us to get to know each other. Uh, and this morning, we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 14. Uh, so if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that's the second book of the Bible. If you're not, pretty easy to find. So Exodus chapter 14, it's a rather long passage, so I'm going to go ahead and get started reading it, and then we can jump right in. Exodus 14, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea. In front of Baal-Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people, and they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him, and took six hundred chosen chariots and all other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud Pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night, without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove, back, drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, and in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of the fire and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots. And upon their horsemen. 
So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned, the chariots and the horsemen, of all the hosts of Erie, of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you that you speak to us. We thank you that you have not left us to figure things out on our own. And Lord, I do pray as we look to your word now that you would open our eyes, that we might behold beautiful things from your word. And all these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So have you ever talked to someone who has a thing? A thing that they keep bringing the conversation back to, no matter what you're talking about. Another way of saying this is, have you ever met an Alabama football fan? Have you ever met someone so that no matter what you're talking about, that's what they're always talking about? You could be talking about the family dog running away. You could say, like, and that's when the family dog ran away. To which an Alabama fan would say, man, that reminds me of this time when Derrick Henry ran away for a 42-yard touchdown in the Cotton Bowl. Roll Tide. The person keeps bringing Alabama football into the conversation because that's what they love. Because that's what they think is going to heal the wounds of your lost dog. In our passage today, we'll see that God is not unlike this. God himself has a thing that he keeps bringing the conversation back to. And today we're going to be looking at Exodus 14, as we read earlier. And it it might be a familiar passage for many of us. Um, But for those of us who who are more unfamiliar, let me orient us here. Exodus tells the story of God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt. And he's calling them into the promised land where they're going to worship him and tell everyone about him. They're going to be a missionary people who, when people look at them, they're going to be able to see what God looks like. And our passage today is the climax of the story. Israel has been enslaved and they cry out to God for help and he hears them. And then God raises up Moses to lead his people out of Egypt into the promised land. But if you know the story, you know that there's a problem. There's Pharaoh. Pharaoh is reluctant to lose Israel, his slave force, his force that has built his empire. But after these 10 plagues that the Lord causes, he reluctantly lets the people go. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament or or the Bible in general, you'll know that this story is everywhere. The story is everywhere in the Bible. At every major point in Israel's history, God reminds them, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. In short, this story is God telling his people his thing. This is the thing that God always brings the conversation back to. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. This is who I am. This is what you need to remember about me. And this story was written for a group of people who've been called out of slavery and are wandering around the desert, making their way into the promised land. These people have experienced the miraculous events of God's deliverance, and God is constantly reminding them of it. No matter what problem they seem to have, they could say, we don't have water. And God's like, oh, by the way, I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. The people in this land are huge. Oh, by the way, did I tell you I'm the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt? To the point where it's almost annoying. Why is God doing this? Because they're prone to forget 
who he is. Is that relatable? Are we prone to forget? We may be able to tell you a lot of things about God, but are we prone to forget him in our daily experience? How often do we live as if we lived in a closed universe where God just sets things in motions and then he just steps out and we have to figure everything out on our own? We may forget about God, but then some of us, we may not even know anything about God. Maybe this is your first time coming around church in a long time and you're legitimately curious, who is this God? So whether we forget or we don't know, we constantly need to see who God is. And as we look at this passage today, we're going to be asking this big kind of basic question. Who is God? Who is God? And in this passage, we're going to see that God is the one who saves. That's his thing. That's how he wants to be known. That's what he wants us to remember. And so there are three uh, elements of this, of God saving. First one is that God is our king. Second, God is our deliverer. And third, God is a warrior. First, let's start with God is our king. And it may seem odd to talk about God as our king in this passage, because if you're paying attention as I was reading it, this passage actually talks a whole lot about another king. It talks a lot about Pharaoh. And he looks like a strong king in this passage. He has a sophisticated army. He has about 600 chariots and other officers. And at this time in the ancient world, this would have been the equivalent of weapons of mass destruction. No one could stand in the way of this, especially not Israel. Israel had all these, they had elderly people, they had children with them. They weren't exactly fighters. They were brought out by a miraculous act of God, and they weren't exactly in a place where they could defend themselves. And in the face of this, Pharaoh comes after them with the world's most advanced army. He decides after he's let him go, you know, I really enjoyed having those people that I didn't have to pay for that I didn't have to worry about building everything for me. I I think I'll go get them back. So he decides that, and then he does it, and no one questions him. And then we see that he's actually very effective in this. They overtook them very quickly. In verse 10, we see that the people of Israel see Pharaoh chasing them down. He says, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. They feared greatly. They get it. It's terrifying to be chased down by the world's greatest army, commanded by the world's strongest king. So we see Pharaoh as king here. But in the rest of the passage, we actually see that God is king. Behind all of Pharaoh's actions, we see God controlling him. We see God playing this world power. In verse 2, he says, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in this certain spot. And the reason he tells them to do that is because Pharaoh's going to think that you guys are wandering in the land and that the wilderness has shut you in. And he says, and I will harden Pharaoh's hearts and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So we've seen that Pharaoh is in control here, right? Seems like it. But then we see behind the scenes that God is actually the one in control. God is the one who's in control down to the very heart of Pharaoh. Pharaoh can't do anything without God knowing and without God directing him. He might look like he's in control, but this passage shows us that God is actually the universal king beyond question. And what do we do with this sort of absolute power being attributed to God? Some of us might like this, right? Some of us love talking about God's sovereignty, but for others of us, this might be difficult. 
And I think our context being in the United States of America makes that a little weird too, right? We don't really like kings very much in the United States. I don't know if you knew this, but there was once a king who was over us. And what did we do with him? We dumped his tea into the Boston Harbor because America. (laughs) Even beyond that, we've set up this system of checks and balances within our government to where no one branch gets too much power in an ideal world. We believe that absolute power corrupts absolutely. We want to give the power to the people. We're suspicious of this sort of power. So what do we do when we see this attributed to God? I want you to think about the experience of the Israelites in this passage. Think about them. They're people who have been under a tyrant king for 400 years. They have seen the abuse of power more than any of us have. And yet, for them, it's good news that God is king. It's good news that God is the absolute power. They've seen all the perversions of power, and yet they know that it's what they need. God's absolute power was good news for them, and it's good news for us, because God is not a king like Pharaoh. God is not a king like Pharaoh. Pharaoh enslaves, but God sets the captives free. You see, the problem is not the absolute power. The problem is what what sort of king is it? And in this passage, we see our king is good. So what does it mean for us that God is our king? What might our lives look like if we truly believe this, if we truly believe that God is our king? How would that transform our marriages? How would that transform the way that we do our work? How would it transform our friendships? I think very simply, if God is king, then that means that he is the one who sets the agenda. God is the one who sets the agenda. If any of you are married, you know that uh, there's a temptation in marriage for there to be things that you just will not talk about in order to keep the peace. (laughs) Someone resonated with that very deeply. (laughs) But if God is king, then we know that that's not real peace. He's the one who gets to decide what peace means. We have to follow him where he calls us. Anything is on the table if God is our king. He establishes what is most important. He establishes boundaries. But I think this also means that our king keeps us safe. Our king is a good king. God is a good king. And it means that anywhere that you step in the world, anywhere in your daily experience, you are stepping on to the king's land. There's no world, there's no part of this world that is not his your work, your marriage, your friendships, even your hobbies is the king's domain. You don't have to fear. So the God who saves is our king. He is the absolute world power, but that's not all that we see in this passage. We also see that he is our deliverer. So God is our deliverer. In this passage, we see in verse 10 that when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and they're terrified. And then they started saying all of this to Moses. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done? Isn't this what we told you? See, Moses, we told you to leave us alone and leave us in Egypt. There's only one problem with that. If you've read this story, they never said that. (laughs) They never said that. So what's going on? It says in verse 10 that they feared greatly. Have you ever been in a place of great fear? You know what that feels like? to question everything, to question what you know to be true. That's where they are. 
They're questioning everything. They're afraid. They're trapped between the sea and the deadliest army in the world. And if you're in that situation, it makes sense why you would want to go back to something because it felt safe. How is God going to deliver them? We see in verse 13 that he has a plan. He says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. When we look at these, there's a lot of imperatives here, right? Like commands. Do not fear. Stand firm. Look for the deliverance. Be still. Be silent. God has a plan, and he's going to act decisively for his people. And he tells Moses to tell the Israelites to move on. And then he tells him to stretch out his hand to divide the water. And you know, if you're Moses, you got to be thinking, shoot, why didn't I think about that, God? Why didn't I just think to divide the water? That's the obvious choice here, right? That is not the obvious choice. That would not have occurred to any of us in that situation, but that is what the Lord will do. And then we see this miraculous occurrence. You see, God makes a way for his people through the water. And he does this despite the people's doubting. He didn't require them to believe in him perfectly before he was going to deliver them. He did not require that. God's commitment to his people is always greater than their commitment to him. And God's commitment to his people is actually more than he is committed to the natural order. God is more committed to delivering his people than he is to the laws of nature, as we see in this passage. He would rather deliver us, his people, than keep an ocean an ocean. It's a big deal. So how should we respond to this deliverance? I think this should tell us that God sees us in our need. He sees us. Even in those areas where we're greatly afraid, where we don't know what's going to happen, God sees us. We're tempted to think that God doesn't see, or maybe it's even more than that. Maybe it's that God doesn't want to see God doesn't want to see us in those areas. Have you ever felt like God didn't even want to look at you? We're tempted to believe that God doesn't see. But actually, if that's you, I want to tell you, that's not what the Bible says. In Romans 5, 8, we read that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's, that's easy. We might have heard that a lot of times. It's easy to let that go in one ear and out the other. But think about this. It doesn't say that while we were saints, Christ died for us. While we were good, when we got our stuff together, it says while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So I don't know where you are, but I want you to know that God sees you exactly where you are. Deliverance doesn't start where you think you should be. It starts where you are. God sees you, he loves you, and he will deliver you. This also means we don't have to hide our need. I know for a lot of us, maybe if you've been around Christian culture before, some of us may have been burned by this. There can be a culture of not talking about what's actually going on inside of us. We have to present a certain way. We have to to look good. If that's you, I want you to hear that the Lord Jesus does not need you to hide from him. He doesn't need it. He already knows. He already knows, and he wants to deliver you right where you are. Jesus comes to us as we are, not as we think we should be. 
So we've seen that God is our powerful king. We've seen that he is our deliverer. But finally, this passage shows us that God is a warrior. God is a warrior. Now, we may have heard uh, a lot about, you know, God is our king. Uh, Kanye West just came out with an album about that. Some of you may be familiar with that. Uh, we've heard uh, that God is our deliverer. These are kind of familiar things for us, but, but we might not have heard that God is a warrior. God is a warrior. And we see it pretty clearly in this passage. We see that God causes a frenzy with all of these chariots here. It says the Egyptians pursued the Israelites after Moses is part of the way and went in after them into the midst of the sea. And then the Lord hits them where it hurts. It says that he clogs their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And then the Egyptians, actually, they start to figure it out. They start to catch on. You know it's bad when they catch on. It said, let us flee from Israel, but for the Lord fights for them against us. See that God is partial here. God has skin in the game. He's not standing back just, you know, oh, I wonder what's going to happen. No, God is actively working to defeat the Egyptians and protect his people Israel. God is partial. But not only is God partial, he doesn't just get in the fight and and not do too well. God God wins. God ensures the outcome. We see in verses 27 and 28 that the Egyptians are swept into the sea. And it's all summed up in verse 30 here. It says, that day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. So God wins. He's effective. God comes out swinging. How does that hit you? A lot of times we talk about how uh, God is love. That might be a familiar image that we have here. How do we reconcile this idea of God being love with God fighting and destroying an entire army here? Here we see God that looks, he looks a little violent, if we're honest. What do we do with that? How do we reconcile a God who fights and a God who's love. Many of us here have children, I think. I don't, but um, I don't need to comment on that. Um, But imagine with me that your child was having a hard time with their teacher, right? Your child comes home a couple days in a row and says, yeah, like Mrs. Jones doesn't seem to like me very much. And at first you might be tempted to believe, well, you know, he's a kid, you know, he, he might be doing something that's causing the teacher to act a certain way towards him. But what if it keeps persisting? What if it keeps going? And then one day your son comes home and he says, Mrs. Jones called me stupid in front of the whole class. What do you do in that situation? You become a mama bear. <laughs> you become a mama bear. In that situation, what does love require of you? Love requires that you become mama bear in that situation. You don't empathize with the teacher and say, you know, son, like, you can be stupid sometimes. No, you don't say that. You fight for your child. Love necessarily means being opposed to that which threatens the beloved. Love has an object. Love means that you come out swinging when the beloved is threatened. And that's what we see in this passage. We see God come out swinging when his people are threatened. So how should we respond to this? And what does it mean practically for us that God is a fighting God? I think first off, we need to just reflect on it and believe the fact that God is so committed to us that he fights. 
if you're anything like me, you, you tend to be a little bit of a uh, conflict avoidant person. Uh, there's not much that you would fight people for. I'm a little brother. I've been getting beat up my entire life, so I don't fight people. But if you're a normal person, think about what you would fight people for. It's not very much. There are not many things that you would fight people for. But God loves you enough to fight. He gets in there. He fights. God is not an impartial observer of things. He didn't just set the earth going and then step back and say, oh, we'll see what happens. No, God is actively working to protect his people. And God will fight that which opposes us both from without and from within. In the New Testament, the Lord Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail against its church. This is a promise. God has set his love on his people. We're secure in him. So this means that when we're challenged, when the church is challenged, maybe our first move doesn't need to be to come out swinging. Right? Maybe we should cry out to the one who fights for us. Maybe we should cry out to God in the areas where we feel threatened. We should cry out to God when we don't feel safe. We can do that because our God fights for us. All right, so let's return back to our original question here. Who is God? We've seen throughout our passage here that God is our king. God is our deliverer. God is a warrior. But ultimately, all of this comes together to show us that God is the one who saves. That's how he wants to be known. God is the one who saves. And as we've seen, this is clear in our passage, but it's even more clear in Jesus. In Luke 9, shortly after the Apostle Peter has confessed that Jesus is the Christ, this climactic moment in the Gospels, there's this thing called the transfiguration that happens. It's a, it's a miraculous moment where Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray and he takes his, his disciples, Peter, John, and James with him. And as he's there, I'll just read the passage for it. It says, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So what happens here? Two of the most important figures from the Old Testament show up and they're talking with Jesus. And what are they talking about? They're talking about God's thing again. They're talking about his exodus. They're talking about what he loves to do with his people. They're talking about how God is the one who saves. But they're talking about Jesus's exodus. What do they mean by that? They mean the cross. They're referring to the exodus that Jesus, the king, deliverer, and warrior, was about to accomplish on the cross for us. It would appear that God still has this thing of saving his people. Just after Peter has confessed that Jesus is the Christ, which is the hope that everything was going towards, we find that he's going to save his people by going to the cross. Jesus is the true and powerful king who humbled himself to die for his enemies. Jesus is the deliverer who became man, died a death for our sins, and raises us up to new life. And Jesus is a warrior who defeated death and hell for us. In giving himself up on the cross, Jesus has made us his thing. We are the thing that he's obsessed with. What if we let that love fill us up? What if that was the thing that carried us through this new year? I don't know where you are. Some of us have been Christians for a long time. Let's take a look 
together at this afresh? What if we let this love fill us up? That God is the one who saves. Or maybe you're here and this is, this is the first time you considered Christianity. I would encourage you, is this something that you want? Do you want this type of love? Do you want this? It's freely offered to you in Jesus. Friends, God is the one who saves and he has saved us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the good news that you are the God who saves or that you didn't um, stand back as a partial or impartial observer of things, but Lord, that you, uh, you got in there and you saved us. You became man. You suffered in this life. You suffered death on the cross so that we might be restored to you. Lord, I pray for my friends here that this love would fill us up this week. Lord, that we would see that you are the one who saves, that you are our king, you are our deliverer, and you fight for us. Help us to see this. In Jesus' name, amen.